I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Beth Bartel. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 12th, 2012. Coming up, we have Dr. Paul Leitze with us today to talk about the James Webb Space Telescope. Paul has an engineering conundrum to share with us. Well, one of the things in preparing the mirrors for the James Webb was in the process after some early development, we had some interesting problems develop in the polishing process. And it's an all-Colorado show today from start to finish. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Here's Beth Bartell. The search for the limits of life have taken a team led by researchers at CU Boulder to the slopes of the tallest volcanoes in the Atacama region of Chile. The volcano's rocky terrain, thin atmosphere, and high radiation make them some of the most similar places on Earth to Mars, and the scientists have found that life there is strange indeed. Microbial life, that is. According to CU Boulder doctoral student Ryan Lynch, the organisms are very different than anything else that has been cultured, and that genetically they're at least 5% different than anything else in the DNA database of 2.5 million sequences. And the microbes appear to generate energy by means other than photosynthesis. The researchers think they might instead make energy by chemical reactions with gas like carbon monoxide blown in by the wind. These extreme microbes could give clues about what life may have thrived on Mars in past climates. For more information, check out www.colorado.edu. This weekend on the Pearl Street Mall in Boulder, local planetary scientists were shining shoes and cleaning eyeglasses and getting some signatures to reverse a serious NASA cut aimed straight at them. Let's drop in. Used to run a $5 billion budget, now I'm shining shoes for NASA. Hi, I'm Alan Stern. Yeah, I ran the uh, science mission director at about a third of NASA, all the science missions, all the science research. We are um, part of a national event taking place today to help restore funding for the planetary exploration budget. Did you get a raisin awareness cookie? Because we were raising awareness for NASA. What's happened is, is that the, uh, the administration released their NASA budget and cut planetary exploration by 23% in one fell swoop. One of the surprising things is that um, across the science mission directorate, only the planetary exploration line took a cut. Unfortunately, it really eviscerates the future program. It means that um, our missions to Mars are going to slow way down, almost stop. Um, our um, missions to all the other planets also going to be way slowed down. Uh, grants will be cut uh, to researchers that are actually trying to turn you know, ones and zeros into discoveries. And um, it's a lot of jobs here in Colorado. You know, most of the planetary spacecraft get built by either Ball or by Lockheed. All the planetary missions get launched by United Launch Alliance, Alliance excuse me, and uh, the University of Colorado and Southwest Research and other, other places analyze the data. Uh, this is a big impact on Colorado. So one of the things we're doing here today on the Pearl Street Mall and here on Spruce Street in Boulder is asking people to sign letters to appropriators. What I will do is, um, if you give me one, I'll personally hand it to Wolf and Schiff and say, you'll be getting... These are going to look so good. You're going to be so proud of your NASA shoe shine. And who offered to hand deliver letters to the Washington Congress critters? None other than our own U.S. Rep. Jared Paulus. 
To continue with the Colorado theme, let's talk about Colorado water quality. We have long known that mining tailings can contaminate surface water, but a recent report by the Colorado Geologic Survey shows that even the water in high, unaltered mountain streams can be dangerous for consumption. Think of the yellow, orange, and red rocks you see by a mine. These rocks have been hydrothermally altered, meaning hot water circulating through the Earth's crust dissolves some minerals and deposited others. Add oxygen to the new minerals, and they essentially rust, creating the bright colors. You may know of one of these minerals, which is pyrite, or fool's gold. The sulfur and pyrite and other material minerals is the culprit that reacts with the water to form weak sulfuric acid, which in turn dissolves metals into the streams. The result is water that is unfit to drink. This happens around mines because the tailing piles are loaded with these rocks. But the same process can occur upstream, where these rocks are still attached to the earth. This natural acid rock drainage has occurred in Colorado for thousands or even millions of years. According to the Geologic Survey's report, the trick is to distinguish naturally occurring acid rock drainage from that of mine sites. Only then can regulatory agencies set realistic cleanup goals. The report earned recognition from the Geological Society of America as the best environmental publication of 2011. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. Paul Leitze from Ball Aerospace is with us to share his intimate understanding of a modern mar marvel, the James Webb Space Telescope. James Webb is the replacement for the Hubble and Spitzer Space Telescopes. The giant satellite, with an eye 6.5 meters across, will orbit a semi-stable point in space called the L2 point, four times more distant from the Earth than the Moon. There, partially shielded by the Earth and Moon from the Sun's light and warmth, the telescope will stare back so far in time and space that it will be able to see the first stars and galaxies being formed. Ball is in charge of the optical telescope element, and Paul is the mission systems engineer. He was also a key player in designing the spectacles that corrected a serious design flaw in Hubble. For his achievements, NASA awarded him the Distinguished Public Service Medal, its highest award to a non-government employee. Welcome to How on Earth, Paul. Well, thank you for having me. You know, James Webb is an amazingly complex machine to put into space. What are the major bits that make up the machine? Well, the major bits are uh, the large sun shield, which is the size of a tennis court, to isolate uh, the telescope from the heat of the sun. Uh, use the term sun shield because it has to shield it thermally as well as just shadow it. Uh, that's to allow the telescope to get cold. Uh, to look back in time, everything's been redshifted, so we have to look in the infrared. And warm mirrors on a telescope glow, and we can't see through our own glow, so we need to have the telescope cold. Uh, the main elements, then, as I mentioned, are the telescope, so it, it's putting the mirrors and everything else. It's so large that it has to be folded up into a tube, the launch vehicle, and then after it gets uh, launched, then it is designed to mechanically deploy. And so part of the major effort we have is what's called a semi-rigid architecture where the 
primary mirror is made up of 18 individual segments that then must be mechanically positioned to be all worked together as though they are one single large primary mirror. And the um, there are other parts to the to the telescope as well that are being built by other contractors. Yes, the uh, the telescope just provides light, so you need instrumentation, and it is an international effort. So, uh, sort of the workhorse in the near infrared is the near infrared camera. Uh, it's done with the, the principal investigator is Marsha Ricci out of the University of Arizona and it's being built by Lockheed. The international effort then is that the Europeans are providing what's the near-infrared spectrograph uh, being built by Astrium, and then there's a consortium of Europeans who are doing the uh, mid-infrared uh, imager and instrument, uh, and that's being done out by, uh, as I said, by a consortium uh, headed up by uh, a team out of the university or out of the Royal Observatory at Edinburgh, but it's jointly teamed then with the U.S. out at uh, JPL uh, for providing the cryo cooler and everything else because it's in the mid infrared and it actually has to have an active cooler to take the focal plane even colder yet. But the important part, as we all know, are the eyes, and that's the part you work on, isn't it? Yes, the big telescope, and it's a marvelous thing, right? Can you describe these mirror segments? Okay, the each individual segment is one and a half meters, so for the use of you who still think English, about four and a half, five feet across, a hexagonal shape. Uh, to be able to control that, to match them so that they all have matched curvature, they have uh, a mechanism on the back, we call it a strong back strut, so that we can warp the shape of each mirror. And then to position them all relative to each other, we have a six degree of freedom. In other words, we, we have a mechanism or assembly that can adjust them so that we can move them sideways, clock it, twist it. We can also move it up and down in what we call piston, and then we can tilt them back and forth. And that is a marvelously complex. Has this ever been done on a telescope before, I, either on Earth or in space? Uh, there has been... Uh, Segmented telescopes, uh, the, the prototypical one here on ground-based observatories, of course, is the Keck Observatory that does use uh, multiple hexagonal-shaped segments. This is really the first time in space and the first time at cryogenic temperatures. These, these mirrors will be operating down around 50 Kelvin absolute, uh, over 400, negative 400 Fahrenheit. Uh, so that's been one of the major challenges, is developing uh, the actuators and everything else to operate these in a cryogenic environment. Well, when you design something like large beryllium mirrors with this complex control structure, I assume that at times you're going to run into problems. Right, and that's, that's a little bit of the thing that we alluded to earlier. Uh, we had built some early... Uh, demonstration units, and we also had an engineering development unit that we had built uh, to build mirrors that operate at cryogenic temperatures because things change, they shrink when they get cold. You can't just polish them to the ideal shape at ambient temperatures, at room temperature, and expect them to work. And so we have to do a series of testing where we, 
we get it close, then we have to take it and measure it in a cold vacuum condition to see how it changes, and then bring it back up and polish in the negative of that change, what we call cryofiguring, so that now it's lumpy, bumpy, ambient, and flattens out nice and smooth at cryo. And beryllium is an ideal material to work with at cryogenic temperatures. Uh, its coefficient of thermal expansion just goes to nearly zero. And so the temperature can change a lot at cryo, and it won't change shape. Unfortunately, at room temperature, where we have to do the polishing and the testing, it does change, have a, a reasonably large change with temperature. And so one of the things that we found is that we were having troubles getting stable cryofigure. It kept having spherical aberration and a little bit of what's called trefoil aberration in the surface of the mirror. And it was sort of changed from cycle to cycle. And with a lot of effort, uh, we, we did studies where we looked at like 24, you know, perturbed 24 different things structurally within the mirror to see if we could understand what was causing it, as well as looking at uh, the atmosphere, the temperature gradients in the atmosphere and the ambient testing that would affect the index of refraction between the interferometer and the mirror, and sorted all those out, and we went eventually came down that the root cause really was the stability of the radial gradient, the temperature across the mirror. And so by instrumenting it with uh, very accurate temperature sensors so that we can control it, make sure we knew the temperature uh, at ambient conditions, we could then control it such that we could eliminate this problem. Well, let's, uh, let's pause and let the mystery steep with our listeners. You know, whether or not this is a problem that's going to get resolved and how. Can you describe, uh, with, a, with a complex machine like that, uh, design alone isn't enough to make sure it's going to work. There has to be a lot of uh, analysis that goes with the design, and then there has to be a lot of testing. Can you describe how the telescope is tested at Ball? Okay. Uh, at Ball, we've built a large facility called BOTS, the Ball Optical test station. Uh, we do testing, essentially, it, it, it's a very uh, sort of elegant way that a lot of telescopes are tested. It's called a center of curvature test. So the idea is that if you let light emit from a point and goes out, and if you reflect it off a sphere that's at the radius of curvature, it comes back on itself so that you can do the interference. But we don't want these mirrors to be spheres, so we use something called a null corrector back at the source of the interferometer so that we get it to appear to be coming back off of a sphere, but when it's got the correct aspheric shape. And so that testing is done. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, you know, uh, over a 16-meter path length, which is the radius of curvature for this mirror, you have to worry about thermal effects in the atmosphere. Uh, people have seen, you know, shimmering images looking above hot pavement, you know, or, or looking at the stars twinkle at night. So fluctuations in the atmosphere can cause problems. So this uh, test station has to be totally enclosed and, and environmentally controlled to get good measurements. Is there a facility large enough to contain such a large structure, or did something have to be purpose-built? We, we uh, were able to do two things. For 
the secondary mirror and the aft optics, we test them here at Ball. The final cryo testing for the primary mirror segments, if we had done it at Ball, we only have facilities to do one segment at a time. And so you have to go through the long duration of going one at a time to cool down, test, etc. So we found that it would be much faster to make use of the XRCF facility at Marshall Space Flight Center where we can test six mirrors at a time. So that way we can uh, go through the testing much faster. The final telescope when it's assembled is so big that will be tested and verified at the Johnson Space Flight Center. They have a large chamber. It was the one that was actually large enough to put the LEM, the lunar landing module during the Apollo days, uh, but it has been cleaned up and modified to handle this. And so the final telescope will go through its cryovacuum testing. Telescope integrated with science instruments will all be tested at the Johnson facility. Let's bring it back to the aberrations you were talking about with the beryllium mirrors. Can you talk about the testing of that and explain what these aberrations are? Is this like uh, getting smacked in the head and having a fuzzy vision or something else? Well, uh, again, as I I'd mentioned earlier, there was a lot of uh, both analysis and testing in the bots chamber and then looking at the metrology stations out at Tinsley where they tested it to do the polishing so that as they polished, they could keep testing. And then we also had a station down at Marshall where we to measure the difference between ambient and cryo. And so what we discovered, as I mentioned, was that we've got to, that we had to control and understand the temperatures of the mirrors in all three of those different test stations. Uh, because when there was a small amount of air, it manifested, as I said earlier, as, as spherical aberration. Spherical aberration is sort of a, a blur, and it's where uh, you don't quite get the focus correct, and so you get this higher order term, and it'll cause a nice symmetric blurring. The trefoil aberration is because of the nature of the actuators on the back, and so you can think of it as you sort of put a three, a pattern of three humps or bumps in the mirror that cause a similar sort of threefold spreading in the point spread function or a funny blurring. But those are very definitive. They're very characteristic. So it's, it's, it, so by being able to understand the character of the aberration, you, you, you can figure out how to attack the problem and, and solve it. Well, I think we'd like to get to the solution of that problem in just a few minutes and the happy ending. But can you explain where the program is at now and where it's going? Well, we've uh, completed all the mirrors. So, so the all 18 primary mirror segments, the secondary mirror, the tertiary mirror, and then the uh, to control image motion or image gender, we have a fine steering mirror. So it's a four mirror, what's normally considered to be a four mirror system. Uh, all of those have been completed, coded. We've gone through the acceptance testing of them. The tertiary mirror and FSM get integrated into a combined unit called the aft optics system. Uh, those have gone through environmental testing and they're in the process uh, here in the next few weeks of going through their final cryo acceptance testing. And so by this fall, uh, all of the element components for the telescope will have been completed. 
but integrating those onto the backplane and the rest of the structures is going to take some time. And so we're still looking at a couple of years off before uh, getting to being able to test a fully up integrated telescope. And what have you learned about the beryllium mirrors and these aspheric, oh, I'm sorry, these uh, aberrations? Well, basically what we've learned is twofold. One is, is making sure we understand the temperatures, not just on the, on the substrate mirror itself, but of the actuators, the motors behind them that move them. Uh, at room temperature, these motors, if we run them too long to move the mirror through too big a motion, uh, they themselves can generate heat that can cause it to be, you know, run around on you. Um, but uh, when we go cryo, because of the nature of being cold, the, the heat dissipated and becomes much less. And so, so it'll actually be a much easier job in space at cryo uh, than, than doing the, the, the ambient motions with them. But we've basically learned that we've, uh, uh, we can do two things. One is control the temperature but also by measuring the temperature, you can analytically back out what you think the air is in the measurement at ambient to predict what you need to do and get it cold. How even, even with that though, it was interesting because we, as we analyze these mirrors, now that we've through the acceptance testing, you try to polish them, you're trying to hit a target of zero air in each of the different types of aberrations. And the ones that aren't affected by the temperature the 18 mirrors, each one does have some aberration, you know, different, but it, but it went, went to zero in all of them, with the exception of the spherical and a little bit of trefoil. So even though we con controlled them, they still have a little bit of air there, but it's well within the fact that we uh, can meet our overall requirement. This has been a great experience, no doubt, for you, James Webb. It follows on a very successful career with the Hubble Space Telescope. I'm sure you worked on Spitzer and others. And uh, it's, a, it's an awesome thing. When is, uh, when is Kepler going to open its uh, I'm sorry, James Webb going to open its eyes? Well, right now the, the schedule, and, and we've been holding pretty tightly to that, is that the launch date, uh, a, a no earlier than October 31st of, of 2018. It's a great, it's a great uh, career, isn't it? Yes. A lot of fun. Well, thank you so much. We're in the studio with Dr. Paul Leitze, who's been giving us the inside scoop about the James Webb Space Telescope. Thank you so much for coming today. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker, this week's show was produced and engineered by Jim Pullen. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music today by the Boulder band Weapons. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartell. And I'm Jim Pullen. <laughs>